So we're nearing the end of our time in Matthew's gospel. And I always feel a little sadness for when we're kind of in the home stretch as we come to the close of preaching through a gospel because it feels like you've been walking with a friend for a very long time. And in our case, exactly two years as of this Sunday. So it has been a while. But of course, we're not quite finished yet. So uh, let's orient ourselves as we begin this morning. Since chapter 16, when Jesus first commented on his pending death, the specter of the cross and its shadow has been looming over the rest of Jesus' ministry, culminating in today's passage as we now come to the very foot of the cross itself. Now, one of the challenges of today's passage is to simply process what we're actually seeing. It kind of reminds me of the picture that came through this week. Maybe you had a chance to see it of the, of, of the very first black hole that was captured. This picture is of a black hole 55 million light years away in what's known as Galaxy M87. Now, since light travels at a speed of a little over 186,000 miles per second, 55 million light years is, well, it's really, really far away. (laughs) But my point is that even though there's a sense that you know what you're looking at, there's another sense in which we just kind of have to wrestle with what that means. The scene in today's passage is similar. In one sense, we know exactly what we are beholding because the details are very clear. But in another sense, given the magnitude of who Jesus is, we have to wrestle with the idea of what this all means. Our passage is Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44. So for one of the last few times, at least in the near future, brothers and sisters, hear the very word of God from Matthew's gospel. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. 
Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So let's pray as we begin. Lord, uh, help us to process what we see here in a way that yields both sobriety and ultimately joy, realizing that it is through this very suffering that our salvation was secured forever by Jesus. And so as we walk through this passage, would you lead us by your Spirit to reveal the glory of Jesus in his suffering. To that end, please let the weight of your glory fall on us this morning. We ask in the name of our beloved Lord. Amen. So then, as we begin to wrestle with what all of this means, let us remember that passages from Scripture do two things with tremendous regularity. First, they reveal the character and the glory of God again and again and again. And secondly, they often reveal the hearts of men again and again and again. So as we, as we seek to process, to understand what's happening here, let's, let's summarize the essence of it like this. The hearts of people are often revealed by their reactions to the glory of Jesus. And sometimes by the requests they make of him. The hearts of people are often revealed by their reactions to the glory of Jesus, and sometimes their hearts are revealed by the requests that they make of him. In particular, let's break down our passage into a little bit more digestible pieces. We'll look at perverse praise in verses 27 through 31. And then a crucified king in 32 through 38. And then finally, demanding damnation in verses 39 through 44. Because think about this with me for a moment. These phrases are designed to illustrate the tension here. 
Praise should never, ever be perverse. Whoever heard of a good king being crucified essentially by his own people? And how many times have you ever heard people, in effect, demand their own damnation by what they were asking of their king? These phrases highlight both the the, the gruesome and the glorious aspects of our passage. But let's begin then with our first section. Commenting on Matthew 27, and these verses in particular, Doug O'Donnell has made what I think is a brilliant comment. He said, As much as the cross of Christ casts a shadow on the whole of Jesus' life, so too does the crown of Christ cast a brilliant light over all of the darkness of his sufferings. Now, I think O'Donnell is exactly right here. This is the surprising symmetry of this passage. As ghastly as it is, we also understand that there is, there is glory on display here. So as much as we might naturally kind of want to turn our heads away, we need to soak in the experience that Jesus endured because it is the means by which we have been saved from the wrath of Almighty God forever. At River Oaks, we talk a lot about thinking through the implications of the cross and how to apply that to our lives. Right here, Matthew slows us down so that we have to deal with the reality of the cross itself. Now, the macabre nature of this scene uh, must be seen in light of verse 26 in order to understand what's happening. In verse 26, it says, Then he, that's Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So here, Jesus is the recipient of a beating at the hands of the Roman soldiers that involved several blows with a basically with a multi-lashed whip that was embedded with pieces of, of bone and with metal to maximize the pain and to maximize the damage that it caused. So the net effect of that was that there was often very little skin left on the entire backside of the person at all, and many people died just from the scourging, let alone crucifixion. So the reality is, if we're thinking about this scene clearly as we try to picture how this must have played out, the reality is that Jesus is probably laying in a semi-conscious state at best in a massive pool of his own blood, and he is dragged then into the governor's headquarters or the praetorium, which served as kind of a, a barracks for the soldiers. Once inside here, they add insult to injury. 
and they did so by summoning the whole battalion. Now, this is interesting because a full battalion would have included as many as 600 soldiers. So when you're thinking about what did this scene look like, I've always had a tendency to kind of picture a couple of guys just giving the business to Jesus. But that's not at all the scene here. This is a massive area, and perhaps as many as 600 soldiers were, were here at this event participating in it. At least several hundred is, is almost assured. Now, likely they would have had to just prop Jesus up. Then they twisted a crown of thorns together, similar to the one that is before you on the communion table. And then they would have pressed it onto his head, probably with the reed that they pushed, uh, put in his hand so that they would not have had to touch it. And the reed served as kind of a mocking way to look at a king's scepter. Here's his form of power, which would have likely just been some kind of a bamboo shaft or something of that nature. So they they mock worship Jesus. These hundreds of soldiers mock worship Jesus by kneeling down before him. They spin on him and then they take the bamboo staff out of his hand and played a perverse game of pinata with the sacred head of our Lord on which the crown of thorns sat, attempting to further humiliate and to further mutilate the king of the Jews. Now, just think for a moment how hard you could swing a shaft of bamboo if you really wanted to do damage to someone's head. And then recall that there's the crown of thorns sitting on it. If that sounds offensive to you, then you're thinking clearly. When they get bored, they take off his kingly robe, put his own clothes back on him, and they lead him away to be crucified. Sometimes the most profound application of a passage is simply to come to a fuller and a deeper and perhaps even a more fearful perspective on the reality of the suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf. The question becomes, what is specifically being revealed in this scene? I mean, in addition to the barbarism of the human heart, which is on full display, Matthew also describes this scene in a way that is a type of foreshadowing of the ultimate scene to which history is driving. This is a satanically distorted scene. It's it's kind of like a counterfeit coronation. So this, this very Palm Sunday, when we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, let's take a moment to exult in the majesty to which this very perverse travesty points us. It reminds us that Isaiah once declared these words, Thus saith the Lord. 
By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So notice their posture and notice their words. But oh, for the day when mockery turns to majestic praise. This event here, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, is actually part of the reason Jesus is exalted forever. This is exactly the argument that Paul is making in Philippians 2, when he says, "...and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And Jesus here in Matthew's Gospel is at the point of death. Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or notice the language of this prophetic statement in light of our passage. Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail, will wail on account of him, even so, amen. So soon it will not just be hundreds of soldiers bowing and saying hail to the king of the Jews in mocking fashion. The reality is that not just even all people, but all creation will join in worship of King Jesus as they bow before him. Revelation 5, And I heard every creature, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever. What glory, what matchless glory will be on display on that day. But the miracle of the gospel is that the cross itself possesses an immeasurable weight of glory. For here we see the character of God on full display as Jesus is mangled and mocked by the very ones he came to make new. Praise God for the glory of the gospel itself. This, this truth becomes evident in verses 32 through 38. And notice that Jesus' glory is essentially in the background. He does not speak. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him 
there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. As significant as the death of Jesus is, Matthew refers to it as when they had crucified him. Because in a sense, Jesus here is submitting to the will of his Father. But he's also submitting to the will of the people in order to redeem them. The people who are unified in their commitment to destroy him. So when you are looking for the majesty and the glory of God on display in this scene, consider the wisdom demonstrated here by our all-knowing God. What manner of humility and self-control is demonstrated by our all-powerful God? Recall Jesus' statement. Do you not know that in an instant I could command 70,000 angels to come to my assistance? He submits to the will of the people to kill him so that he can redeem them. When you're looking for the glory of Jesus on display in this passage, consider what manner of trust the Son displayed in his Father. He trusted him unto death. That his promises would one day result in glory. But he submitted himself to the very end, to his Father's will. What manner of love the Son demonstrated for his bride, redeeming her for the highest price imaginable. His sinless life for her unholy hatred. The sign above his head served as a witness to the entire world. This is Jesus the King of the Jews, who is the Savior of the world. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the gospel. Do you know that this is true? Maybe you're haunted. Maybe you are haunted by your past. Maybe you think you have committed sin that could never be redeemed. Maybe this very morning you're sitting here in agony, distracted by the ongoing nature of your sin. Behold the gospel here. For the blood that is spilled in this scene is capable of washing you whiter than snow. To those who express faith in this Jesus, he gives you the right to become children of God. There is hope for you if you will turn to this offer from this king. Now imagine for a minute that you are Simon of Cyrene. Now, Simon's a Jewish name, and there were quite a lot of 
Jews in North Africa, and this was a Greek settlement there. So likely, he's just traveling to Jerusalem to be there for the Passover. Just want to mind my own business? Just want to go there and worship God? And as he begins to approach the city, this death processional is coming out of the city. Maybe, maybe he had seen one of these before, and he's like, oh, I hate these things. So he stands off to the side to let it pass as he goes to enter the city. So Mark tells us that Simon was walking into the city as Jesus was walking out, carrying the cross beam of the cross that redeemed us from our sin. At this point, Jesus is likely fallen to the ground because the soldiers determine that he's too weak to continue. He's not going to make it to the skull. He's not going to make it to Golgotha, which could have been a few miles. And he falls in a heap. So the soldiers, who are professional executioners, realize this isn't going anywhere. I'm not carrying that thing. So they grab Simon, who's standing nearby, and compel or force him to carry the cross. Simon's life was confronted by the reality of the gospel in perhaps the most dramatic way imaginable. He was forced to carry the crossbeam by which he might be saved. And there is some New Testament evidence that he was saved because Mark also includes that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus, two people who are mentioned in the New Testament. If these are his sons, then it's likely that this incident led to the salvation of Simon's, Simon and his family. Has the gospel ever intersected your life in, in, a, in a rather unexpected way? It may, may not have been as dramatic. Indeed, it wasn't as dramatic as this particular scene on this specific day in history. But the implications are exactly the same. Salvation is possible because of the sacrifice that we behold here, no matter what you have done. Sometimes God surprises us with his grace, and I pray that he would do that for you this very morning. The question is, what purpose does Simon's presence here serve in terms of the sovereignty of God? Have you ever thought about that before? It's such an odd detail. I mean, maybe it's just the historical reality of how it played out, so that's why it's captured. But, but if you think about it, Simon of Cyrene is the literal embodiment of the call to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Back in chapter 16, when Jesus first predicted his suffering and his death and his resurrection, right after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, Peter doesn't like this at all. It doesn't fit with Peter's plans, and so the text actually says that he began to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus' reply to Simon Peter was memorable, get behind me, Satan. 
you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So perhaps in chapter 16, with his coming suffering fresh on his mind, perhaps for Jesus with this scene in Matthew 27 at the forefront of his thinking, he takes this interaction with Simon Peter and turns it into a teaching moment. Because he turns to his disciples and he says, anyone, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Imagine Jesus staggering down the road and Simon of Cyrene literally carrying his cross. But Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry the actual cross of Jesus. Because of the gospel, we are free to pick up our own crosses and follow him. That's the miracle, the ghastly but glorious miracle of the gospel itself. What, what must Jesus be calling us to in terms of self-sacrifice? If, if, this, if this is the image that he uses to say what it will be like to have to deny ourselves so that we might be able to follow him. This is a blunt reminder that to pick up our crosses daily is in fact a matter of life and death. It will include painful decisions every day as we seek to heed the calling of Simon Peter that he gave us years after this scene unfolded, when he said, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By these wounds inflicted in this scene, you have been healed if you have placed your faith in Jesus. Because of what is true, because of what Jesus has first done for us, we are free to follow a path of radical service and holy obedience, following the steps of Jesus as we are prompted by the Holy Spirit. This, this is not the path of the exceptional Christian life. This is the path of the Christian life. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The reality is that the penalty of our sacrifice, avoiding, and self-referenced decisions with the penalty of these sins nailed 
to the bloody crossbeam that Simon was compelled to carry, the reality is we have been redeemed to freely choose to follow in the steps of our Lord wherever he leads us. This is the privilege and the honor and the challenge of the Christian life. So let us ask ourselves the fundamental question. Where is the Holy Spirit calling you today to follow in the steps of Jesus? Though you realize it will involve self-sacrifice. Family, somebody at church, a neighbor, a co-worker, or a friend, or an enemy. It's not easy to walk with people through difficult things. But Jesus was clear. His disciples will freely follow him down roads that will cause us to have to trust in him. Because they will be, frankly, too hard for us to bear on our own. And yet, the way of the cross is the path that leads to glory. But maybe as you sit here now, your, your prayer is, and I think this is a good prayer because Jesus prayed it, so by definition it's good. Maybe as you're thinking and as the Spirit is prompting you about a particular person or a particular situation, you may be thinking, uh, not him, not her, not, no, no. My encouragement to you is to pray like our Lord prayed. It's okay to say, if it be possible, let this cup pass me by. But complete the prayer as well. Nevertheless, if your spirit is prompting me, if you are calling me to this step of self-sacrifice, then not my will, not my will, Lord, but yours, yours be done. It's good to ask the Lord for that. It's good to request things from the Lord because the hearts of people are often revealed by their reactions to the glory of Jesus. And, and here's the point now. The hearts of people are also sometimes revealed by the requests they make of him. In our final section, listen to the nature of the mocking, both from the everyday people who are walking by, and from the religious elite, the religious leaders. They say to him, destroy and rebuild the temple. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others but, but can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Can't you picture him standing right at the foot of the cross? Maybe half turned to Jesus and half turned toward the bystanders and hear these men say, he trusts in God. Let, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. 
Now, of course, in, in, in context, these accusations are intended by those mocking him to cruelly inflict further shame on Jesus. This is part of the design of crucifixion, not only to maximize pain, but to maximize shame. That's why you're nailed to a beam naked in public so that people can walk by you and say, you learn your lesson? While you're alive, suffocating. Criminals were publicly executed as a warning to others and in a sense so the public could condemn the actions as well. But because we are not unaware of Satan's schemes, we understand that from his perspective, this is essentially the last chance he gets to try to get Jesus to curse God and die. So he goes straight for his identity, using these that are standing at the foot of the cross as his prophets. He's thinking, undoubtedly, that Jesus must surely be vulnerable to doubting who he is or questioning either his father's goodness or his power or his love. Has Satan ever used that tactic with you? to try to get you to doubt God's goodness or his power or his love for you. Surely if God were good, he wouldn't allow this. Surely if God were all-powerful, he would stop this. Surely if God desired him. In other words, if God really loved him, he wouldn't subject Jesus to this horror. It reminds us of the temptations in the wilderness at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Satan used the same tactic, going right at his identity and trying to create doubt. He said, if, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Doesn't Scripture say that your daddy will protect you? Who is king, Jesus? Bow down and worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. You see his tactic here. Jesus overcame these temptations by trusting in God's word. And he will continue to entrust his heart to his father, even in his forsakenness as we will see on Good Friday. His father had proclaimed that Jesus was his beloved son. This is the truth, despite his circumstances. May we follow in the footsteps of our Lord here when we face suffering and difficulty. Jesus will continue to trust until he gloriously surrenders his life with these words into your hands, speaking to his father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The nasty implication of these accusations made against Jesus is, is that what's happening is his fault. 
because he's lying. What's fascinating is that if you think about it, if Jesus does what they're asking him to do or exhorting him to do, and Jesus comes down from the cross, the hope of salvation will forever be extinguished. So in effect, the people are demanding their own damnation. The hearts of people are often revealed by their reactions to the glory of Jesus and sometimes by the requests they make of him. So this is the place that we need to think very clearly as well. It would be good this week to discuss what's revealed by the prayer requests that we make. Art is constantly encouraging us and exhorting us to play, pray about real issues in growth group. And this is largely why. What is really important to us is in fact revealed by what we actually request of God in prayer. May God deliver us from ourselves despite ourselves. Now the mocking of the robbers is a final punctuation point on the absurdity of the human heart. If you can mock the guy next to you while you're suffocating as you're being crucified, you're not thinking clearly about something. The human heart has almost a limitless capacity to ignore the reality of what's actually going on inside of us. So then, may our requests of God help us fight the internal battle that is happening within us with both power and with precision as we are led by the Holy Spirit. Finally, this is Holy Week, brothers and sisters, and so my encouragement to you as you're thinking about these things is we would love for you to join us on Friday because in the wonderful sovereignty of God, um, we will cover the passage where Jesus dies on the cross this Good Friday and then Sunday morning, resurrection morning, we will celebrate the resurrection of our Lord here in Matthew's Gospel. May this week for you be filled with both soberness, sobriety, and joy. Sobriety, as you recall, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf that actually made salvation possible. And pure and utter joy because Jesus defeated death on our behalf when he conquered the grave. That's why every day is resurrection day. That is why Christ is ours forevermore. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are staggered by the, the purity and the beauty and the power of your majesty. And we need you 
to help us to think clearly now. For it is good to remember the sacrifice that you made on our behalf because it reminds us of the full devastating reality of sin itself. And so we ask that you would help us to think clearly about that, but also to remember that Jesus overcame the world. He triumphed over Satan on Calvary's cross. And therefore, we have forever to celebrate the reality that Christ is ours. So I pray that that thought and the joy that accompanies it would now fuel our worship. And I ask this through the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.